And if you'll keep out those Bibles and turn over to the New Testament, Titus, the book of Titus, in the New Testament order is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then Titus, one of those pastoral letters. We're going to focus in this morning on verses 7 and 8. As we continue our journey through the qualifications for uh, church officers, especially or specifically uh, elders in God's church, let me ask you a question, and a question that has been asked through the past three sermons of this sermon series. How is the church to act in a sin-filled and chaotic world? What is the church supposed to be? in this sin-filled and chaotic world. Well, this past week, I saw on social media that one church thought that uh, the practice of the local congregation should be a, a sermon introduction where the pastors came out on stage dressed like sharks, singing the old, cheesy kids' song, Baby Shark. Now, if you don't know what Baby Shark is, count yourself blessed. Because it's an annoying children's song that grows in its cheesiness each and every time that it's played. It has, uh, quite frankly, uh, silly hand motions. Uh, And for some reason, children seem to love it and every parent seems to hate it. But that is the gimmick in which this church thought this is how we're going to reach a sin-filled and chaotic world around us. And as we look at Titus, does Titus lend itself to these gimmicky, childlike, immature actions? Or does it lend itself to a very reverent and structured and orderly church? Well, it's not hard to argue that Paul writes to Timothy, as Timothy or Titus rather, that Paul writes to Titus with a very distinct message, we're going to plant churches in all of Crete, the island of Crete, and in every city, what we're going to do is that we're going to appoint elders to lead within each and every church. Now, as Paul gives that command to Titus, his disciple, this new missionary or church planner on this wicked island of Crete, he says that as you go from city to city to city, planting these churches, putting in order what already has been established for even these infant churches that are already present, you are to appoint elders, but not just any man can be an elder. The men who can be elders must meet the qualifications spelled out within my writing. In fact, there are 16 qualifications for church officers that are found here in Titus chapter 1. And the whole message is, if we're going to develop a godly, ordered church that's going to impact the world around us, this godless and unstable world around us, we need a team, a body, a session of godly men, stable men, who will lead the church into the battleground of the world. And so as he gives these 16 qualifications, we actually started our journey through these qualifications looking at the first three last week. We're going to 
handle another 12 this week, and then we're going to handle the last one, Lord willing, next week. And so we have much to cover, but before we do that, let us read verses 5 through 9, and then we're going to focus in on these next set of qualifications that are before us. People of God, again, hear the Word of God as the Holy Spirit gives us understanding. This is what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and and not open to the charge of debauchery or, or insubordination... For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains for elder, forever and ever. Well, oftentimes when the church is looking for church officers, when it happens to be the month of August, which is the nomination season here even at First Presbyterian Church, oftentimes what we have are men who are nominated who are popular amongst their friend groups, or... Uh, who, quite frankly, we think needs to serve more within the life of the church. Therefore, we're going to nominate him for church office. Nowhere within these 16 qualifications for elders, or deacons rather, or even, do we see that those two things are qualifications for church office. In fact, what happens when we do something like this, we become... Israel, when they're choosing their first king, you know, the people of God cried out, we want a king like all the nations around us. We're looking at all these pagan nations around us and we want a king. And so the prophet Samuel says, okay, the Lord will give you a king. Who do you want? And they begin to look around. And what do they do as they look around the community looking for a leader? They say, I want him. He looks like a king. And, and it's almost, you, you almost read that little narrative and it's almost like Samuel looks at the people of God and goes, well, what else? What other qualifications does he have? Nope, that's it. He looks the part. We like Saul. We like the people that Saul hangs out with. And you know what? We want a king who is well-liked and looks the part. Well, of course, we know how that story ends, don't we? They pick or choose a wicked and sinful king who will actually be cut off from the grace and favor of God because of his sin and iniquity. And so we have to be very diligent in not doing what our natural inclinations desire to do. We have to make sure that the way that we nominate and elect men for the office of elder and deacon are those men who meet the biblical qualifications for church office as established within the Scriptures. Yes, they need to have some giftings. 
Yes, they need to be good teachers, the Scriptures say, for elders. Good servants, the Scriptures say, for deacons. But they must also meet the list of qualifications that are established here in the Word. And you think, well, why does Paul give us such an exhaustive list, such a detailed list of qualifications for church officers, specifically and especially elders within Christ's church? Well, I think it's simply because Paul understands that the church and her holiness rarely surpasses that of the leadership. Let me repeat that. Paul knows that the church and her holiness rarely surpasses that of the leadership. You see, what Paul is establishing here is he gives us this exhaustive list of qualifications. He's telling us that the leaders of the church are those who set the standard for Christian living within the local body of Christ's people. And so you think about these qualifications that we just read together. All 16 of them. What the ultimate goal here is, is for the local church to be full of each and every member who who shows or, or oozes forth, we might say, these qualifications. We want a, a whole church with all of her members being hospitable, being lovers of good, being self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. We want a whole church to be full of people who are not arrogant or quick-tempered nor addicted to wine or violent or greedy for gain. You see, the, the ultimate goal here is to have a whole church that's full of the people who would, who would meet these criteria. And yet, especially those who are elders, they must meet this criteria. Because what is the role of an elder? Well, actually, it kind of gives us a little bit of a, an understanding of the role of an elder here in verse 7. For an overseer is God's steward. And so he is the overseer of Christ's church. He is a steward of God's church. He must lead it well, serve it well. He must be an example for the people of God. And so you think about what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 1 and 2. He tells the church at Corinth to imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that really is the, the call of the leadership for the local church. The leadership of the local church should be able to say, alongside of Paul, members of this flock in which God has now counted me an under-shepherd of, an elder of, a deacon of, you imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And the whole purpose of that saying is simply to say, I'm pursuing Christ-likeness. I'm pursuing holiness. I'm pursuing Christ. And if you'll imitate me, You'll imitate Christ. And it's, and it's not a, a bragging or self-righteous thing that Paul is saying here. He is saying that I'm striving to live a life that is pleasing to God. Therefore, if you imitate me, you will do the same. So an elder and a deacon must be worthy of imitation and godliness here in the local church. That's why Paul is so specific and exhaustive here as he gives us these 16 qualifications. 
And the first three that we handled last week, if you were with us, was that we must, in the first part of verse 6, the man who ought to serve as an officer of the church must be above reproach. And we spoke of that last week, how he must be solid. He must have a, a reputation that is good, a reputation that is respectable, a reputation that is earned even, that he must prove himself to be above reproach. He also... In the second part of verse 6, he must be a one-woman man. We said how our, our English translation doesn't quite capture the original Greek like it ought, as it writes, the husband of one wife. That leads to a little bit of confusion, but if we read it exactly the way in which the Greek reads, a one-woman man, we know that we cannot have a, a, an officer who is promiscuous. We even said that he cannot be last week, that he may not be a playboy, that he must be, uh, must be clean from, from sexual immorality, he must be faithful to his wife if he is married. And then the, the third qualification that we handled last week was that he must be a man who leads his household well. He, he must be a man who, if he has children in the home, they must be being raised up in the faith. They, they must be discipled. And if I can just kind of go on a rabbit trail for, for just a second here, that is the philosophy of ministry within the Presbyterian church. We don't evangelize our kids. Yes, we share the gospel with our kids. But we don't treat them as unbelievers. We treat them as disciples. They're a part of the covenant family here. So last week when we had a, a baptism before us for little Walker Britt, we're bringing them into the visible church. And we're saying that we as a church are going to help Dustin and Lauren to raise this child up as a disciple. That the, that the call for the church, for the Christian family, is to, to pass down from generation to generation the, the teachings of our holy religion. And so we, we teach them early the doctrines of the faith. We teach them early who Jesus is. We, we teach them early what the sacraments are. We teach them early what our church government is, how to respect elders and deacons, and even strive to be the next generation of elders and deacons if they're young men. And so we have to understand that they're disciples here. And so qualification three is that this man disciples his children. He must have children who are not running wild and mocking God and disobedient, but he must have children who are, are believers, it says, disciples. And so as we move into the next set of qualifications here, you see in verse 7, we're handling the qualifications in verse 7 and 8 this morning. In verse 7 he says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Now he's not saying the same thing that he said in verse 6, even though he uses the same language. See, he's speaking in verse 6 to the outside world. He must be above reproach in the community. He must be above reproach in his workplace. He must be above reproach as he coaches little league teams within the city. He must be above reproach in each and everything that he does outside of the local congregation context. And here in verse 7, 
He's saying, and he must be above reproach in the church as well. That he must be a steward of God's church. That he must be a steward of God's gospel. In fact, the way that verse 7 reads, it, it seems as if Paul is giving somewhat of a charge to these men who will be nominated for church office as he calls them an overseer, God's steward within the local church. John Calvin, in his sermons on this letter, says that it's not a title of honor or distinction. It's a charge, a most difficult charge. For now the church officer, especially the elder, is to watch and take care of the whole flock while other men sleep. That is the the role of the church officer, specifically and especially the elder of Christ's church. He is the one that is watching diligently That's the point John Calvin is making. He is the one that's guarding the church. He is the one who is watching over the church. He is ensuring that that the sheep do not stray away from God's fold, but, but in matters that they do stray away from God's fold, He will go search them out and bring them back correct where correction is needed and, and love where love is needed. It, it's a it's a lifestyle. Of a call. While other men sleep, John Calvin says, it is is a, a call to be a church elder that cannot be turned on and off when we show up on Sunday mornings. But an elder is watching over God's flock. He is an overseer of God's flock from the moment that he is ordained before the congregation all the way to the throne of judgment on the last day of the Lord. Hebrews 13 tells us that every church leader will have to stand before the Lord on the throne of judgment and answer for the way that he guarded the sheep, the way that he oversaw the sheep. And so that's what John Calvin says. It's not a title of honor or distinction. It's a difficult charge. And one that he actually says that we, that we should take that we should take careful diligence in ensuring that we understand what this call is as, as church officers leading the people of God, that we must understand that we must be above reproach in the community so that we might not face anything negative said about our Lord outside of the church, but we especially must be good stewards above reproach inside the church. It's this idea that That there is no valid accusation that may be brought against this man, this church officer, in regard to his church life and work. And so as the Book of Church Order of the PCA uh, demands from us, we do do an officer training after uh, nominations are done. We're about to start an officer training process. And this is one one of the questions. How do you strive for work towards the good of the church. To be a church officer, we must be head head and shoulders above the common member. We hold our elders, our deacons, especially, or should be at least, especially, especially we should make sure that they are above reproach in the stewardship of God's gospel within the local context. But if we continue on, that was qualification four. We need to move to qualification five. We need to select a man who is not, as the ESV says, arrogant. 
Look at the second part of verse 7, 7b we might call it. He must be God's steward, above reproach, but he must not be arrogant. Now one of the things that you'll notice here is that Paul kind of bounces back and forth between what he should be and what he should not be. This one's a should not. And it's actually kind of interesting how Paul writes in the original Greek. It's not shown to us in our English, but he, he's not demanding perfection. He's not demanding perfection. He is demanding a striving for. A life that's pleasing to the Lord. We actually got the opportunity to look at Philippians 2 this morning uh, during Sunday school hour in the seekers class that, that myself and, and Lee Gulledge lead. And, and we were looking at how to live a life pleasing to the Lord. And, and it's this idea that in our sanctification, if we're striving for holiness, that is pleasing to our Lord. It, it's not that He demands perfection. Yes, He calls us to be holy as He is holy. But we know that we cannot do that in and of ourselves, that we must be sanctified. And so in this sanctification process, as we are striving for holiness, the Father in heaven is actually pleased with us. The the illustration that Sinclair Ferguson makes here, uh, as he talks about this this selected verses in, in Philippians 2, he says, it's much like a child who makes its first attempt at drawing their dad. I mean... Brooks is in a stage, and Anna Kate's in a stage where they, they like to draw me, and, and they are not good, okay? Um, but when, when, they, when they give me those pictures, do I say, Brooks, that's just not any good. My feet look like Godzilla. I don't have hands. Uh, my head looks like it weighs 400 pounds, and then my body's a little stick figure. Well, do better, and when you can do better, you bring me another picture. Is that what I say to Brooks when he attempts to draw me? No, I I cherish it. I treasure it. We put it on the refrigerator. We say, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. We we are pleased and we delight in that work, even though it's so bad. And that is what the Heavenly Father is when we are trying to strive for holiness. It is pleasing. It is a bad attempt. Don't get me wrong. But it is pleasing to the Heavenly Father when we're striving for holiness. And so what we see here, what we see here with the elder is that he's striving for holiness. He, he, he is not what, what the Greek actually says is self-willed. Self-willed. He does not live a life that is arrogant. That is for his own glory. No, he strives to live a life that's pleasing to the Heavenly Father. He, he does not serve as an elder or as a deacon so that he might push through his agenda. He does not serve as an elder or a deacon to show somebody within the church who's boss. He doesn't serve as a, an elder or a deacon so that he can disregard the congregation's interest and others in order to please himself. No, he, he lives out a life that is seeking the best for first the glory of Christ and then for the good of the congregation. And so he cannot be self-willed. He cannot be arrogant. But he also, 7C, that next uh, characteristic or qualification within verse 7, he also cannot be quick-tempered. 
He also cannot be quick-tempered. When, when, when we see this idea of, of, of anger, we might say, of, of rage is probably the best word to, to use here. We're saying that we cannot have officers within Christ's church who are prone to throw temper tantrums. As a leader, we must deal with all kinds of people, and some of those people will sometimes rub you the wrong way. Sometimes being an elder, being a deacon, causes you to to work in the midst of hard situations. Shepherding issues, financial issues, Marital problems, family problems, sin problems. I mean, you name it, we've seen it. And, and sometimes what, what will happen is that you are, you are so in the midst of, of the hardship as, as, a, as an elder, as a, as a deacon, that, that you're tempted to lose it. You're tempted to lose it. You're tempted to let your passion and your emotions drive you. But we cannot be... The elders, the deacons cannot be a people who are, who are quick to explode. We must be very ordered, calculated in our anger. You say, well, Matt, you know, anger is always a negative thing. No, it's not always a negative thing. Paul exhorts us, be angry, but do not sin. There is an anger that is righteous. The Greek word for it is tumos. It speaks of God's calculated, ordered anger. And that's how we ought to be as well. We must be angry at sin. We must be angry at the consequences of sin. We, we cannot be driven by emotion, be driven by our passion, be driven by a sinful anger. We cannot be quick to explode. But then you look at 7D. He cannot be a drunkard, as the ESV puts it either. He cannot be a drunkard either. Now let me be very clear here. I do not think, I do not believe, and, and many commentators throughout the Reformed tradition have agreed, I do not think that the Bible teaches total absence. I think it teaches us a careful moderation when it comes to alcohol. I mean, you think about the way, or, or the context even, of of what is taking place here in the island of Crete where Titus is ministering. Actually, Crete is still known for its wine production after 3,500 years. And so, so wine is a big portion of, of the Cretan's life. And, and, and so when, when Paul tells Titus, you must pick men who are not drunkards, He's saying you must, you must pick men who are not addicted to much wine. They, they know how to, how to guard themselves from drunkenness. They know how to carefully and, and deliberately uh, practice moderation in their drinking. Now, you know, there are, there are times and people who, who need to practice total abstinence from alcohol. If that is your conviction for many different reasons, I'm not... Uh, saying that that is wrong. I'm just saying it's wrong to imply that on other people. So what we're looking for is men who are not, who are not drunkards, who are not controlled by much wine, who, who know how to moderate themselves, how to, 
how to balance themselves even, who are self-disciplined, self-controlled. And those are other characteristics, qualifications that we'll see here in just a moment. But before we get there, we have to handle violent. That's qualification number eight and seven E. He cannot be one who uh, goes and, and fights. He cannot be sinfully angry. It's almost actually close to the same word as quick-tempered. It's another idea that we cannot be brawlers. We, we must be men who, who know how to control themselves, who, who know what, what it means to be a disciplined man, a, a sober-minded man. And then qualification nine is in 7F is that he's not uh, fond of greedy gain. He's not greedy for gain. This is interesting to me because here in the island of Crete, there are many, the island of Crete believes in capitalism. We'll put it that way. There, there are startup, you know, companies, if you will, starting all over the city. There are tradesmen, sailors that are coming in and out of the cities on this island to, to do business. This actually is a place where many different nations and, you know, countries and people groups would, would meet together to to sell and to trade and to do business. This is a hub, if you will, of industry within the ancient world. And, and so Paul's not saying that you can't be a capitalist. You can't make money. He's just saying you have to make money the right way. We cannot use our leadership that's entrusted to us for some sort of shameful gain or dishonest profit. We must be men of integrity, the Scriptures are saying. You know, one of the early, uh, early Scripture uh, commentators, Plutarch, he said of the Cretans, they stick to money like bees to honey. And, and we cannot be that way. We cannot treasure the riches that this world has to offer, but we must seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to us. And so we must be good stewards of money. You know, there are men who will do anything for money. They will lie, cheat, steal. They'll promote themselves, con people out of money. That man cannot be a leader within Christ's church, the Scriptures are saying. Because the man who is greedy will always find himself doing even more to earn riches. Committing even more sins to appease his desire for gold. The tenth qualification here in verse 8 beginning at verse 8, and I know that I'm short on time. But the man of God, the elder, the deacon, must be hospitable, it says. Hospitable. He must be a man who will open his home. He must be a man who loves the fellowship of the saints. He must be a man who will uh, just put it in the plainest of terms. He enjoys having people over at his house so that he might spend time with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, here it is that a man who refuses to be kind, generous with his own home and resources is a man who is not good elder material. But he is those who welcome people into the church in a hospitable way and the home in a hospitable way. He's a man who loves good, qualification 11. Just as our Lord is good, He is a lover of good, it says. 
And so he loves good people, good places, good activities, good programs, good interests. He, he does not associate himself with any sort of evil or immorality or corruption, but he only associates himself with what is good. He's a man who's self-controlled, qualification 12. Again, this ties back to drunkenness or being quick-tempered or being violent. Many of these qualifications work hand-in-hand hand together, but he is a man who cannot be driven by his passion. He will have ultimate control over his thoughts, attitudes, actions, and speech. And he's also upright and just. This is a big one. This is a big one within uh, the qualifications of deacons and elders. Uprightness or just. He's a man who is a good citizen who loves fairness. He seeks to have pure conduct before the people outside of the church, but inside of the church he knows that in the processes of like church discipline that he has to be consistent in every situation. You know, church discipline's hard. Being an elder when there's a church discipline process going on is difficult. It causes heartburn, anxiety, sleepless nights. And yet, the problem there is, the reason why it's so hard is because we're an average-sized PCA church in a small town. We know everybody, and we know everybody's mama and grandma and daughters and sons. We call them friends, and yet... The, the qualification here is that he is just even in his church discipline. And so what does that mean? What does that look like? We don't focus on the person, but we focus on the situation. We do what is right and just. We do what is faithful to the Lord and good for the soul of the sinner. And the peace and purity of the local congregation, we do it despite who it impacts. There, there ought to be no favoritism within the leadership of the church. That's what's being said here. And we need a man who is devout and holy. That's qualification 14. We need a man who is holy. Again, we're not looking at sinlessness. We're looking at a striving in character. We're looking for a quality of being. We're looking for reverent and serious and godly men who has godly dignity. As we often hear our brother Jim say, we want men who want to keep short accounts with the Lord. We want men who want to keep short accounts with the Lord, and so they must be reverent, godly, holy men. They cannot allow irreverent and godless practices to take place in their churches, but they are zealous, zealous for the holiness of Christ as they pursue holiness corporately and individually together. And then the last one that we'll handle this morning, 8F, you might say, and he must be disciplined. Literally, the Greek says they're sensible. I actually like that translation a little bit better. He must be a man who is sensible. He must, he must be a stable man, mentally. He, he must be in control of his mind. He, he must have good sense, a soundness, a sanity uh, to his mind. You know, we often say, that person has book sense, but they don't have any common sense. You ever heard that said about someone? 
Well, next week, Lord willing, we'll say that the elder needs book sense. And when we speak of book, we talk about the Bible. But he also needs common sense. He cannot be irrational. But he must be sane and stable. And that's, that's exactly what will lead us, Lord willing, next week into uh, verse 9, that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might teach and correct or rebuke. But Lord willing, until we meet together next Lord's Day, may the Lord write these qualifications upon our hearts so that we might live for His glory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come and, and to look at these qualifications. And Lord, we pray uh, that, that the elders and deacons present, that we'll strive to live uh, a life that is pleasing to You according to these, these qualifications, Lord that we would live lives pleasing to you, so much so that we might say to the rest of the congregation, imitate me as I imitate Jesus, so that we can grow in holiness together. And so would you grow us up spiritually, Lord? Would you enable us to pursue Christ's likeness? Would you continue that good work that you're doing within us by your word and by your spirit, so that we might uh, live for your glory here within the church and in the community around us? Lord, let this church be well-ordered. Let this church be diligent so that we might be a lasting witness to the world, the sin-filled world around us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.